This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change but worry that you will face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, coming up on February 18th and 19th in 2016 in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. The call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st. An early bird registration is now open as well. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. Right after that, on February 20th, Closure D will be taking place in Berlin. Closure D is an independent, non-profit conference from the Closure community for the Closure community. Focus points will be interesting developments and ideas in the global Closure community, as well as introductory level talks highlighting the fun aspects of learning and messing with closure. The call for papers is currently open and will close on November 30th. If you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to help spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Rachel Reese. Rachel, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Rachel Reese. I currently work at Jet.com. I'm a software engineer there, and I have been working with F-Sharp, gosh, since about... 2010, and I suppose seriously since about 2012. I am super happy to be here. Thanks for being a guest. I've been familiar with you tangentially through F-Sharp and some of the stuff you did. And I know you and Andrea Mignorski were on mostly Erling together and hearing you there and a couple of .NET podcasts as well, talking about F-Sharp and just kind of some of that general community around. So wanted to get you on and hear your perspective about F-sharp and some of that stuff that it brings and what makes it interesting, especially being in the world of .NET. So how did you get into F-sharp and how did you first get exposed to it? If, you got it, if you've been in for about five plus years now. 
Sure. It was in 2010, F-Sharp was first included in Visual Studio. And I had attended, I believe it was a tech ed conference in, it was in LA. And I think that was the big news of the conference was that Visual Studio was now going to have F-Sharp in it. And everybody just kept saying, you know, F-Sharp is amazing. You have to go check this out. And there was just, there was a lot of buzz around F-Sharp at that conference. And I kept thinking, well, sure, you know, I'll, I'll get around to it maybe, maybe soon. And I went back and I sort of, after the conference, I started to play around a little. You know, I started to solve the Project Euler problems in F-Sharp and just very playing around, very light things. And it was a couple years later, I would say, I'm thinking 2012, Skills Matter every year holds a, or normally would hold an F-Sharp conference called the, the Skills Matter Progressive F-Sharp Tutorials in New York. The first year they did this, I came down, I was living in Vermont at the time. I came down and they have two tracks, sort of a beginner track of tutorials and an advanced track of tutorials. And the beginner one was, I very much felt like a beginner and thought I was probably a beginner, but it just so happened that the first thing that they were going to have the beginners do was work through the F-sharp Cohen's, which are a whole bunch of failing tests. I know that Ruby has a similar thing and several other languages do as well, but just to sort of get you familiar with the syntax. And I'd already done those. I was like, well, I'll probably solidify my knowledge a lot more if I go in the beginner track, or I could go into the advanced track and do something I've never done and maybe gain one tiny little piece of something out of it, even though I probably will have no idea what's going on. So I went to the advanced track, and it happened to be Don Syme and Keith Batachi talking about type providers. And I sat there for like two hours through this tutorial just completely fascinated. I thought it was the most amazing thing that like had ever happened to programming. And in case anybody doesn't know what type providers are, I figure a lot of people will, but it's basically just a, a way to be able to hook out into any data set straight from your code. You'll get typed information back because F is typed. You'll get IntelliSense in Visual Studio because that's also really big to .NET folks. And you can basically like IntelliSense into your database or into a CSV file. And that just completely blew my mind. And from there, it was like, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened. And I need to learn more about this. That was sort of my defining moment. I guess I went right from there back to Vermont and started a, a functional user group. I figured at the time I was probably the only person interested in F-sharp in all of the state of Vermont, but there surely were other people, you know, and I found a whole bunch of closure folk right away. There was a closure shop up there for a while and a few Scala folk found some racket folks. Even we all started meeting and that, that I think helped to really solidify my knowledge of functional concepts and jump in here. If you have questions, cause obviously, like you said, I am going off very much on a tangent. Because even with the very limited knowledge I had of F-sharp at the time, I was the only one in the room who knew anything about it. And so one of the Clojure guys would stand up and say, hey, Rachel, you know, Clojure has this feature. Does F-sharp? I'm like, I have no idea. So I'd go home and look it up and I'd go back on the mailing list the next day and be like, actually, F-sharp totally does. And this is how it works in F-sharp. And it opened my eyes to the real functional parts of the language in a way that I never would have gotten if I'd started some other way. So it's how I got started. <laughs> no, that sounds good. It sounds like a lot of people have started playing with it. And what I was going to get with you first, and then I'll probably ask you about the user group some, is with picking it up and playing with it, that was on your own at first. But did you feel that 
you had others around you that kind of were interested in it? Did you identify at least a community of people you knew peripherally that picked up on the excitement when you were at TechEd and then back and around? And Originally, no. I had a lot of pushback. I was living in LA when I attended that TechEd and when I first started to play around with it. And a lot of the feedback I got at the time was just, why would you do that? That's, that's weird and different. Here, learn this thing from C Sharp. And it was really once I hit the New York conference, when I attended that conference and then went back to Vermont and found those folks, you know, I met a ton of F Sharp folks at the, the conference and followed them all on Twitter. And I started to build that community over the course of the next year or so. But yeah, there was, I don't think I knew anybody that was also interested in F-Sharp before the Skills Matter conference. Because 2010 sounds pretty early, because I know I had heard of it being in the .NET community, but there was also the, it's fringe, it's completely research. Nobody in their right mind from an enterprise perspective where .NET usually falls would take a look at this and a bunch of those other arguments. So I can imagine... If you found this, there was some hype there going off and trying to learn it on your own. If you didn't have a community, it was kind of a rough thing and just making sure that you're actually picking up the right lessons. That And it was really one of the things I had the most difficulty with was just even how to set up a solution. I understood that there were compiled files and script files, but how did they interact? And what was I supposed to do with like, I understood how to create a C-sharp solution and I didn't know how things worked in F-sharp. And that was actually one of my first big hurdles that wasn't really addressed anywhere. And so you take it back to your user group, you start up for functional programming. You said Clojure and Racket and you were the F-sharp representative. Yeah. Did you find that aside from them asking, does F-sharp have this? Did you find that those groups of people who probably, especially some of the racket people, I would assume, being a strong list background, probably had a pretty strong background beforehand of functional programming as well. Did you find you had a lot of introduction there as well to the general concepts of functional programming, aside from just how F-sharp does this? Very much. One of the guys who was most excited actually is a, a Scala guy who is, I have almost sometimes convinced to to come over to F-sharp, but was a very knowledgeable in both functional concepts and the, the whole history. Some of the talks that he would give are on like the papers that Church started off with and the fights around, you know, the whole in the 30s of, you know, how all of this got started and where Lambda Calculus actually came from and lots of very fascinating, somewhat academic, but very interesting background. And he was very big in the group. And the closure, it was a whole team of closure folks. There's four or five of them. Like I said, there was a whole shop in Vermont. And they'd been doing this for several years. I don't know how many, but obviously several. And we're able to say, this is a common feature of functional programming languages. And I mean, the first night I went out, I hadn't heard of closure. I hadn't heard of racket. I hadn't heard, you know, I didn't know that closure was a lisp. And so just hearing people be able, you know, saying all these things offhand and saying, well, well, what's a lisp then? And I was able to get all of that sort of feedback and it was just really amazing. And also it was a really wonderful group because we were fairly small, 10 to 20 people each time. 
but it was a very easy place to practice some of the early talks that I gave. Especially since, you know, the first couple times I'd give them, they were only maybe a half an hour long instead of an hour or an hour and a half. And it would sort of devolve into a group discussion. And so I'd start off with, this is what F-sharp does, or this is the feature that I'm talking on right now. And they'd say, well, yeah, again, you know, does it do this? What about that? What about these other things? And then there'd be a, a conversation. Well, Racket does this. Well, Scala handles it over, over this way. And these two languages handle it slightly different because they're background. And so I'd, I'd learn all of these fascinating things just from sort of starting a conversation with a half-formed presentation. And this, I know you had said you wanted to get into the, the user group stuff a little bit, but this was something actually that when I lived in Nashville, that Nash FP also did really, really well. <laughs> Their format tended to be more very short presentations, just a very easy, what are you working on, whether it's finished or not, but if you think you're doing something kind of cool or not, if you're doing something that's at all functional, get up and tell us about it. And so it was like four or five 15-minute presentations instead of one long presentation each time we met. And those talks and presentations that you'd give at the Vermont group, and it sounds like the Nash FP group, those are all kind of structured as here's some first initial thoughts and then exchange of ideas because it's not all just F-sharp. It wound up being, we're going to start a conversation and see how each of these ideas plays in with it. And here's how Scala does it, or here's how Clojure or Racket does it, and here's how F-sharp does it, and here's how language XYZ does it, right? Yeah, and it. I don't know that I intended the Vermont groups to be like that. I think when I, the first time or two I gave a presentation, I was like, I'll give a presentation. And then it ended up being this conversation, which was, I haven't seen in almost any other group except the Nashville one where they intentionally foster that. So yes, it worked out that way and it was awesome. <laughs> and is that just a, we go through, we spin up the conversation and then it was it just ad hoc informal conversations and people sharing what they were doing or as it evolved, did there get some structure around how that conversation grew out? Did people take turns up at the front on the projector or whatever and say, well, here's what it looks like in closure or Scala, since you've just shown the other language? In Vermont, no. It was officially one presentation that was supposed to be an hour long each time. In Nashville, sort of. There were usually set slots, so you would sign up for them in the week or so beforehand and say, you know, I'm working on something interesting. I want to present this 15 minutes. And then there would be a little bit more discussion, but it's usually there wasn't a transfer of laptops and somebody else saying, hey, you know, I look at this also. It was scheduled, but not terribly scheduled, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. <laughs> and I've heard some that kind of go more of a round robin dojo style kind of thing. And I think, and you know, Andrea Mignorski, she kind of mentioned that we all kind of take this problem and work on it in whatever language and then go around and start sharing those ideas of how this is done in a given language. Here's a closer solution. Here's an F-sharp solution. Here's a Scala solution. And here's a Haskell solution. And where did these things kind of align and diverge? Yeah. And there were occasional dojos. I remember Andrea actually giving one at Nash FP. 
that's exactly how that would work. You know, everyone would work on a problem and at the end it was sort of, Hey, I did this. Or one of the first dojos that I went to down there was one of the community for F sharp ones. They have a whole series of dojos that you can just download and give spontaneously at your own user group. And we had all grouped into partners and the last exercise on the dojo was to like implement some other feature. And so it was fun to go around and see who had implemented. It was like, you know, make up a feature for your program, you know, whatever the thing was that we were supposed to do, you know, create something new, do something different, make it have some color in it or make it taller or smaller. I don't remember which of the dojos this was, but it was interesting to see the different things that people had done. That all sounds good. And that sounds really interesting. And I can see where that would help foster a lot of your interest and excitement about functional programming in general and F-sharp specifically, especially when you're forced to go and answer those questions of, well, you're the F-sharp person. How does, <laughs> how does F-sharp do this? And you're like, I have no idea, but <laughs> you've asked. So now I'm obviously compelled to give you an answer because you're going to harass me if I don't. Yeah. And that sounds like a brilliant hack for learning. And that's one of the things I try and do whenever I'm trying to learn is like, okay, can I go find some other people that I can share this with, be them coworkers who might be dabbling their toes in or just not even dabbling their toes in and try and show off what's cool and say, I expect you to ask me questions because I know I've got gaps. <laughs> yeah. And it, that's great. It, it had never occurred to me that it was, you know, a hack for learning. And it, it was one that I just completely stumbled into and was perfect. <laughs> it sounds like it's especially useful when you have a bunch of people who know a bunch of other stuff on things that you might not necessarily be exposed to just with a traditional approach of books or whatever, and you're guiding someone to blog posts and trying to learn it. At that point, especially, I had no idea even what to look for. I didn't know what was unique to F-sharp or what was unique to functional programming language. I didn't really know what functional meant. And I was really able to define all of those sorts of things, having people be able to say, you know, yes, Racket has this, yes, Clojure has this, but we do it differently. <laughs> So you built up this whole history and you started getting a good learning path with F-sharp. Then you take the advanced course as well, C-type providers, you get hooked. Do you manage to find something where you can start integrating F-sharp into your day job or are you still kind of just doing that promotion and push and all this external learning on the side? Because I know right now you're doing F-sharp. Yes. But what was that transition into actually getting an F-sharp gig? If you had to introduce it somewhere, how did you find that? introducing it into another company that does .NET? I found it fairly difficult, actually. I tried at the, the company I was in in Vermont and really pushed. I had, on my own time, I took a very standard C-sharp application that was taking data from like two or three different databases, combining it together and putting in a third, just very basic data transfer application. And I thought, well, you know, everyone says F-sharp is good for math and science-y things and data. I was like, well, this seems obvious. It'd work here. So I converted it over to F-sharp. I found a bug. I was able to convert the whole runtime from like, I don't remember what the original time was. I think originally it took maybe four to, to 10 hours. I'm not exactly sure. I think it was more like four. And I fixed a bug while I was converting it. And that brought it down to like an hour or something. I wrote a blog post up on it that I should actually be looking at for exact times, but... And I'll make sure to get it in the show notes so people can <laughs> refer to it too, so you don't need to be exact. 
So yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll put it into the show notes if it's on a blog. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's been almost two years, and I, I know the numbers in the blog are right. But I was able to get it down less than a minute at like 30 seconds by the time I was ready to leave the company. I just kept tweaking it and tweaking it and tweaking it. And, you know, I started talking to the people that I'd met at the Progressive F-Sharp tutorials. And, you know, I had a, a lot more reach and a lot more folks available to answer these questions that I had. And so it was slow going. And I think because my network wasn't fully developed, because there wasn't a huge network in general for F-Sharp, it took me a lot longer to do this conversion than I think the company was probably comfortable with. And so there were also a lot of the very standard excuses, you know, nobody else knows F-Sharp, so how are we going to be able to maintain this? And we can't hire anybody who knows F-Sharp because nobody knows F-Sharp. And so I, I did end up just getting a fair amount of flack for it, even though the original C-Sharp solution took however many billions of hours that it took. And the F-sharp solution, you know, took 30 seconds. Basically, they were starting to think about possibly thinking about F-sharp more when I left. <laughs> and I, I decided that was a great first step, but I wasn't willing to wait that much time. And at that point, I left Vermont and I actually moved to Tennessee to work for Firefly, Brian's company. And that was awesome. I started working on Xamarin and there was... There was a deal there where I was going to need to work originally in C-sharp, but then transition over to F-sharp as soon as we could. And that was really neat because I, I knew nothing about mobile development. It'd been years since I'd done anything front end. And as I started to play around with the Xamarin stuff, it's completely different than you know regular C-sharp programming because of it's you know a wrapper on iOS and a wrapper on Android. And trying to figure out proper structure of an iOS program was totally baffling. But once I had that down, it was really fairly easy to convert those C-sharp ideas into F-sharp programs. And so I started writing very basic little apps. I wrote a Minesweeper app. I converted, Xamarin has a, a Tasky application that they show everyone as like your first iOS application. I think it's cross-platform even. And so I wrote a version of Tasky in F-sharp. And just a couple other little apps to play around with concepts that I was actually learning during the day. And one of the really cool things that came of that was I started to sort of improve the speed of my F-sharp. I released those two and, you know, other pieces of code out into GitHub, which I, I've had my slides and my presentation and I guess the sample code I had out before. But because I was starting to work with Xamarin stuff, Putting that out there, I got a couple pull requests from Dave Thomas, who basically developed the entire binding for Xamarin for F-sharp and is, you know, tremendously knowledgeable. And I remember one of the first apps I had done, I don't remember if it was Tasky or Minesweeper, I had done a whole bunch of things mutably on the front end because that's what you have to do in C-sharp. And it's still a little baffling to me that you can have any sort of front end that works and isn't a little mutable. <laughs> But he came in and sent me a couple pull requests to change some of my code and make it a lot more immutable and properly functional and properly F-sharp. And I learned a tremendous amount just from that on, you know, it was like 10 small little changes 
And that, you know, I was able to bring those things back into my C-sharp code and say, well, it would be a lot cleaner and clearer if I was doing this here instead of like one thing, you know, instantiating an entire object all at once rather than creating the object and then changing 15 properties on it, which is a small thing, but it's, you know, it was one small thing I noticed. Just the idea of the whole idea behind Xamarin, being able to write mobile app with F-sharp and now with, with Xamarin Forms being able to do your one base project in F-sharp that will work across all three platforms is really almost still mind-blowing to me. (laughs) I've heard about it, and it sounded impressive, and it also sounded kind of mythological from the fact that, especially with people like, I really like F-sharp, and I think I've pulled this off, even though they don't explicitly say it, or at that time they didn't officially say that they support F-sharp at all. They're like, oh, yeah, you can do this in C-sharp and vb.net. And <laughs> said nothing about F-sharp, and people are like, F-sharp works. They're like, we will neither confirm nor deny that statement. That's up to everybody's own experience. <laughs> so I want to go back a little bit, back to your first job. With that data munging and migration that you said went from four hours down to 30 seconds by the end of it. Yes. A couple questions around that. A, did you find a lot of the things that F-sharp brought you helped clarify other tasks that you could do to bring it down to 30 seconds and just make it more obvious as to any wasted things that were going on based off things like type alignments and having to convert and say, oh, well, yeah, these things don't line up. So now we got to do this and make those things more obvious. Or what about F-sharp helped bring that down to 30 seconds just because everything is touring complete. What did you find were some of those benefits of F-sharp that helped you make that change so drastic? The first one, the major one, just by rewriting the code, and I mean, the F-sharp is smaller, it's cleaner, it's easier to look at, all of those things. The bug that I found was actually, we were only supposed to be taking a subset of the data each time. And the C-sharp version was converting all of the data every time. <laughs> that was the main thing. Everything else was really just a matter of tweaking the F-sharp. It wasn't, unfortunately, something special about F-sharp. It was, well, I suppose it was something special about F-sharp. It was using the F-sharp specific types, you know, using, the the problem is I don't even really remember a lot of the stuff that I did, but the F-sharp compiler has so many special optimizations for the F-sharp specific types if you're using a DU and pattern matching on things, that's just going to be compiled a lot faster. And maybe not that exactly, but like F-sharp lists compile into something that the F-sharp compiler can work with a lot better and faster. It's So a lot of optimizations that are taken care of by the language that helps make your code run faster. Yeah. Than necessarily, oh yeah, F-sharp's got this super great feature aside from types and some of the other stuff that just makes it shorter and more concise. So you can have the problem in your head all at once easier, but it was a lot of the stuff around F-sharp, the language core then. Yeah, and I was able to use type providers. I think I used two different type providers in that project, but it's, that helped me write the code faster because, again, I was able to IntelliSense into a lot of these things. But it was it was like switching you know, from a console.write line to a, a printfn in F-sharp. Maybe it was an sprintf, I don't remember exactly, but like the F-sharp specific printing was actually a little bit faster. And since I was printing for each bit of data that I transferred, 
15,000 times or something that sped it up just a teensy bit and, you know, took 20 seconds off or something. That was one of the tiny little things that I did. (laughs) So the other question I had around that was by the time that you got it down to the short time frame, if it wasn't full on 30 seconds, you said the business itself was like, okay, this is taking too much effort. It's not worth it. But did you start getting any peaks of interest from other developers that you're working with as they saw that I found a bug that was made obvious by just writing this enough sharp that took us down from four hours to one hour, 10 hours to one hour, whatever that time is. And here's the other things that it gets you. Did you start to to pique any of your other coworkers' interest in F-sharp and get them to say, probably not going to get a buy-in into it here at work, but there is something interesting here that maybe it is something I should go off and look at? Definitely. I know the, the developer who ended up taking over my solution had learned a bunch of either ML or OCaml in college. So I remember just saying, well, perfect. <laughs> then like you barely need to know anything else to, you know, except this is a type provider here and now you can maintain the solution. <laughs> and then one of the other developers that I worked with was really interested in the fact that that was, you know, that that had gotten so much faster. And he kept joking that he was going to try to optimize the C sharp solution and see if he could beat any of those times. As far as I know, he never did. I know he was quite busy at the time, but I guess not a net win for F-sharp. But I was actually really hoping that he would because I I did not think that he could make the C-sharp solution any faster. (laughs) It's still a net win if you get some other people looking at it and not completely discounting it. Because I know when I was working in .NET, it was hard enough just to have people look outside at open source that wasn't Microsoft. (laughs) And... Just the, well, Microsoft says like, well, yes, Microsoft wrote F-sharp. Oh, yeah, well, but that's something that they're not really invested in, and that's not one of their core tenets. So that seemed, it was the challenge of outside open source as well back around that similar-ish time frame. So I... Very much. And so I didn't know the small net winds of saying, look, okay, nope, there is something here. I might not start on it soon, but there is something here that I do need to check out because... You've obviously proved us wrong to some extent that <laughs> yeah. that, there, that there's nothing special about this language. So going back to Firefly, you started doing some mobile dev and moving stuff over to F-sharp. From what I've heard, Firefly was an interesting little mythical beast of a company <laughs> because from hearing Brian Hunter talk about it, as you mentioned his name, It sounds like they were actually one of those companies in that ecosystem that said, look, we're going to pick the right tool for this job. We're going to pick whatever we need to, because I know he's talked about using Erlang on the back end with C Sharp and F Sharp and other .NET stuff for other pieces. So how did you find bringing in those and working together across a whole bunch of different systems and picking that up and working in whatever might be needed? Working with the other developers was really fabulous. It was unfortunately less across all systems than I would have liked. I think literally all of my projects were C-sharp. That's not true. I worked with Canopy for about two weeks, which is the the F-sharp wrapper over Selenium. But beyond that, everything else was C-sharp. I know they had some projects in the past, and I know they had some projects after I left, which used Erlang, but it's... Unfortunately, the most of what at least I was doing was not. <laughs> but working with the devs there, I mean, 
Josh Bush was wonderful to work with. I know Calvin also as well. Macy joined while I was there. And I mean, there all of them there were tremendously smart and willing to just jump into the whatever new project we were working on. And it was a lot of fun to work with them, obviously, and Brian as well. So I know you're at a different company now. Did you leave there to go straight to Jet? Or did you have some other excursions in the middle as we kind of progress through your career of using <laughs> F-Sharp? Sure. I was considering going out on my own, actually. I was rather disappointed at the lack of C-Sharp. And the company and I had, well, we'd been talking and we're like, you know what, this maybe this would be a good time for you to go out on your own, Rachel. <laughs> and I was talking to several different people. I was going to start training. I was going to do a lot of things. And I attended, again, the Skills Matter Progressive F-Sharp tutorials. And I remember I was speaking. Actually, I, I spoke every year except the first one, which was actually really wonderful for me. But I remember talking to folks, trying to think about you know training options and everything. And I kept disconnecting with a company that had just started in the New York area called Jet, a startup. And after I came back home to Tennessee, I finally ended up connecting correctly with them. And they were bringing somebody on to do training and evangelism, which is exactly what I was going to go off on my own and do. And I thought, this is amazing. This is perfect. This is, this is awesome. And they originally wanted somebody to come up I could work, you know, I guess not work remotely, but be based out of Tennessee and just fly up to New York every now and again and run training classes, both internally for the new employees coming on, as well as externally to like get more interest in F Sharp in the New York City area. And as I started to talk to them more, we both were like, this is awesome. This is, this is perfect. I would love to do this. And the CTO during one of the early conversations realized that I was starting to go off on my own. He's like, wait a minute we could hire you full time. <laughs> Hold on a minute. <laughs> and so it was, you know, two weeks into being out on my own, I was moving to New Jersey to work for Jet. And so I'm in charge of training and evangelism there, but it's, it's neat. It's a fully F-sharp company there. We have something like 65 or 75 developers now. We have like one to five new developers start every week, so I can't even keep track. <laughs> but the vast majority of our, you know, something like 98% of our backend code is F-sharp. We have a few leftover C-sharp solutions that we haven't converted. We have, we have some Node and JavaScript solutions on the front, but it's F-sharp and microservices and all sorts of very cool, very forward-thinking technologies. Yeah, I heard you on Hansel Minutes talking with Scott Hanselman about Jet. And so I knew you were using it there. And it sounded like they were going all in, but I didn't realize that they were that many people actually working on F-Sharp. And it sounds like that's a great community there to be able to pull in F-Sharp developers. It really is. And it's we've converted some people over. They actually weren't F-Sharp to begin with. And I only learned the story somewhat recently. But apparently at the beginning, my CTO was at the same Skills Matter event originally where I heard about type providers and he heard the same things about F-Sharp that it's good for finance and it's good for data and numbery things. And having the idea in the back of his head that he was going to create this e-commerce site, he thought, well, F-Sharp will be perfect for the pricing engine. 
so he went off and hired somebody to work on the pricing engine. And the first three or four developers, I think one or two knew F sharp and were very interested in it. And the other two didn't. And I, I don't know exactly who or how that all worked out, but they ended up disagreeing whether the entire solution should be built in F sharp or just the pricing engine, or, you know, maybe the pricing engine and some other pieces. And so they built two completely separate solutions. They built one that was completely 100% F sharp and one that was completely 100% C sharp and just decided to see where that would take them. And the F sharp solution obviously won out, but it won out for a couple different reasons. The main coding reason was that all the, the cross-cutting concerns, logging and other such things, because of F sharp's composability, you're able to start somewhere and just have a series of pipes down through the steps of going through something. And that made it so much cleaner and nicer and easier to work with everything. The several different libraries that C-sharp uses, um, I don't remember exactly what they are, but like several of them just didn't quite do the exact things we needed and modifying them to work exactly as we needed would have been such a ridiculous effort. Whereas with F-sharp, we have the same thing in 20 lines and it's just much more beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting to hear a company that pretty much starts to go all in pretty early days, especially as they start up. And recognize that it probably will give them a competitive advantage along some edge of the platform, whether or not that's speed of development, speed of the framework, the kind of people you get. And so that's interesting to hear that they kind of took that early plunge and said, I've got an inkling about this and we're just going to go in and try it out and see how it works. Very much. And it's been really exciting to watch some of the developers be converted. <laughs> so you went there, you're doing training in evangelism, and it sounds like they had the C-sharp crew there as well. How did you find their reactions once you started having to train people and get them more familiar with F-sharp that had already been there and were working and not coming in explicitly looking for an F-sharp job or... Whether or not they had experience in F-sharp or not, they weren't coming to Jet and saying, I want to do F-sharp full time. They were there and say, well, this is F-sharp and I guess I'm sold because I need to be versus <laughs> I want to do F-sharp. So the solution was fully F-sharp by the time I joined. So there was less of a C-sharp crowd left over, but I have... In that case, have you found a lot of the people coming in that you're having to do stuff when you're getting the five people a week or so. Have you found that a lot of them are coming in knowing F-sharp or they're the, oh, we've played with it and this is the space I want to be, but I haven't gotten in there yet. So Jet's the perfect fit because they'll help bring me into that space because they want people in that space as well. It's more of the second one. It's, we hired pretty much everybody in the, the New York general area, like five or six state area. <laughs> And pretty much anyone willing to move to New York pretty quickly. And now we're finding a random assortment of people who know both C-sharp and like Haskell or another functional language, but not necessarily F-sharp, which is a really interesting mix of people. And, and then standard C-sharp folks are like, you know what? This is interesting. I think Jed is really cool and I would love to learn F-sharp. So let's do this. And it varies across the board. Some of the folks come in 
claiming only to know C sharp and Monday's training class, they pick up these functional concepts right away. And I'm like, are you sure you don't? <laughs> like, maybe you knew a little Haskell or maybe you played with closure at some point. Surely you must have. But it really hasn't been that difficult to bring everyone into working on the code. And I think I would actually say part of that is because of the microservices, because it's a small amount of code and it's a few functions within this one file that people need to maintain or to write. And it's, it ends up being a lot easier to sort of jump in and figure out what is going on. That makes sense. And that actually leads me to a question about how JET sees microservices. Because I've kind of had this thing with other jobs where it's like, well, we can't go extract microservices because it'll take too long. And I'm like, if it's going to take you more than a week of a couple devs and QA to get the service up and running and out the door, maybe extracting all the pieces and getting every piece in your app to use it is different. But if it's going to take you more than a week with a couple people and some QAs to prove that out, that's not a microservice. That's too big to be a microservice. <laughs> How is JetC microservice compared to the more official definition of microservice for whatever there may be and the co-opted term of microservices just as SOA with the new label attached to it. I'm actually, I probably should be, but I'm actually not aware of any official definition if there is one. I'm not either. I just know the scope is generally super small, can be thrown away and rewritten relatively quickly. Yeah. And so for for us, we've defined that sort of as uh, something that adheres to the single responsibility principle. So we define a microservice as a single responsibility principle so that the microservice obviously should have basically one reason to exist. And we think that the most difficult parts of microservice really is the infrastructure. And so, you know, whether you're using something like Docker or console, or in our case, we ended up actually rolling our own for things, you know, like discoverability and when to restart a service and scaling it. So we, we rolled around this product called Torch and at Jet, all of our teams and all, you know, all of our internal products are actually named after superheroes. So Torch is our pieces of architecture that, that really handle all of these things. One of the reasons we rolled around rather than actually going off and just using Docker or console, because we're using Azure, but a lot of cloud services, it was taking such a long time to go in and deploy one or even simply restart it. And I think it was 15 or 20 minutes it was taking. Whereas with Torch, you know, we can make Torch do it automatically and it takes about 20 seconds. <laughs> so I don't actually remember the name of the talk, but every week we watch a video from a conference as a, a tech talk internally. And we watched a really interesting one lately on sort of microservices anti-patterns. And one of the recommendations was sort of like you were talking about, you know, start with a monolithic application and then break off pieces individually and create one microservice as you need it. And then later create another microservice as you need it. And this actually is not what we did at Jet. We sort of doubled down on microservices from the beginning. But I think one of the reasons that we did that was because of the difficulty of building all of that infrastructure. I feel like that's something you need to have in place and you need to have right maybe not with the first microservice, but shortly thereafter, as soon as you're starting to look at three, four, five microservices, 
it's something that you really want to have a good story around. And so I think that answers all of your questions, actually. <laughs> that does a good job. And that was one of the things I I love the idea of microservices, and I've even done a few small ones. But when people talk about, oh, let's extract this out to a microservice, my first reaction is, you better be able to answer a whole bunch of questions about this new service we're going to extract before I'm going to say, yes, this is a good idea because yeah, playing with Erlang and seeing the way that fault tolerance is done and then getting into distributed systems hmm. has made me very, very cautious about people just going off and doing it. And then there was the book release it by Michael Nygaard about just all the failure cases around what happens. It's like, okay, so we're going to do this. We're going to put a network disconnect. We're going to introduce latency. Hmm. But are we prepared for that service to fail? Or are we just getting it out of our app? Yeah. And a lot of that infrastructure, as you were talking about, is how do you handle those failures? We're going to just get this out because we want to get it out. Or we want to get it out and we want to actually be able to handle that right as well. Yeah. And actually, you mentioned Erlang. Very interestingly, just this past week at Oradev, I had a very short conversation with somebody whose whole idea was basically, you're talking about all this infrastructure around microservices. Couldn't I just do all of that with Erlang? <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and you were at Ordev, so you just gave a couple of talks there. And just on the pre-show, you said they kind of aligned with your F-sharp stuff and what a lot of the stuff you're doing at Jet. So do you want to give everybody a little rundown and tease about your talks? Because I believe Ordev's pretty good about getting those videos out. Ordev is, they're actually already out. They're out the following day. Ordev is pretty incredible that way. So I gave two talks. One was on our microservices and just basically a patterns and practices, you know, what we have learned from implementing the microservices at Jet. So we have something like 350 microservices now and just some of the, the mistakes and near mistakes that we've made along the way. The other talk was based on the data science architecture that we have going at JET. So, you know, we originally looked at doing something that was sort of a Lambda architecture setup, and we ended up modifying that and found that we were able to basically stream everything in real time and didn't need really a whole lot of batch sections. And so just on how we set that all up, and then I sort of backed down from that into, we use a whole lot of F-sharp to do all of the processing here, and then here's a whole lot of F-sharp basics and why I think that's awesome. So 300 plus microservices. That sounds like <laughs> a fantastic number to learn from. It very much is. We have made a, a lot of learning. <laughs> One of my favorite recommendations in the talk is to separate out any microservices that have a side effect. If you have a microservice that, say, somebody just finished making a purchase and you want to both take that data and put it into either event store or to SQL server or, you know, save the fact that somebody made a purchase as well as send them an email saying, yay, congratulations, here's a copy of your order. It'll be on its way soon. Make sure you separate those two things. In a previous part of the talk, I talk about how you should never have side effects ever and try to get to rid yourself of all of them because being functional is very important. So then I followed up with this talk about how, well, you can't really get rid of all side effects because you do need to do things like send an email, write something to a log. These things just happen. But make sure that any side effects are very specifically isolated. We have microservices, but all of our stuff is event sourced as well. 
So if you're replaying through the event stream to fix a bug or to update something, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, you're replaying through the stream, you don't want to fire off the microservice to, well, you do want to fire it off to write out to event store or write out to SQL server, but you don't want it to resend that email because if you're replaying the entire stream, then you might be sending an email that's four months old, four years old to somebody who's like, you know, a congratulations for, thank you for buying your order email. And that would get really awkward. <laughs> and you just started to preempt my question that was going to be a follow-on was, it sounds like with the 300 microservices, and you were you actually mentioned this, is you started to think very functional. Do you, have you noticed your ways about building all of these things have changed since you started doing functional programming? Because it seems from my limited experience of talking to other people about microservice architecture that the people who do functional programming or at least have played with it and get an understanding of it start to think differently than people who have come from more and more traditional OO background. And I won't even say a pure OO background, but the general mindset of what OO is in the common environment. And those seem like two drastically different approaches because it sounds like you're doing the same approach that I've heard other people talk about where, again, very small, very isolated, as you said, single responsibility, and as well as thinking about limiting side effects and composing things up so that they can be part of a bigger group together in the way you compose functions and other behaviors and then have your side effects off to the side so they can be done without interacting with the rest of the system as well. So is that something you found to hold true as well? Yes, in general. So one of the other things that we do actually is is sort of set up each of the microservices the same way. So anyone coming in has a similar sort of template for each new microservice. So there's not, yes, there is still a whole a fair amount of learning to go on, but they are all done in F-sharp and they are sort of the meat of our application. For folks coming on who didn't know a whole lot of F-sharp before, there is definitely that paradigm shift. I don't know that there is as much for a few architects and, and anyone that did know a ton of F-sharp. Yeah, and that's, yeah, there's a paradigm shift of that and just thinking about it as smaller components that you're intentionally keeping as pure as possible so you can set them up together into maybe a microservice that is a service that's really just a facade or gateway to four other services that it orchestrates. Exactly. So is there anything else that we haven't covered? Because we've covered quite a bit, but I want to make sure that there's anything that we haven't covered specifically that you think people should know about from F-Sharp or some of the stuff you're doing along microservices or the data architecture stuff. Not that I can think of offhand. I don't know if Build Stuff records their talks, but I will be there at the end of the month as well. So what are you going to be talking about there for anybody who might be going and listening to this or might be deciding to go because it's in their area after hearing this episode? Ah, I will be giving another microservices talk. <laughs> There's actually two Build Stuffs this year, about three days apart, one in Lithuania where it normally is, and then one in Kiev. And which one are you going to be going at for anybody who's listening and goes to a build stuff if there's two of them just a few days apart? Sure. I will be at both of them. <laughs> okay. And then I'll also be speaking at VS Live. I have a, a Xamarin talk and an, an F-sharp versus C-sharp talk that I'm giving with Rachel Appel. Okay. 
So you've got a couple of the upcoming appearances. Is there anything else that you want to plug? Anything you, you want people just to know about or recommend in general to go either look at or? If anyone is all at all interested in working in F-Sharp, then Jet is still absolutely hiring. And they should contact either me, Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, at jet.com, or go straight to the recruiter, because I will just pass you on, who is amy at jet.com, which is A-I-M-E-E at jet.com. <laughs> and then any other recommendations you have for the audience if they're looking into F-Sharp? Any good resources for people getting started or finding out more if they haven't actually dabbled in F-Sharp yet and just want to pick it up? Oh, definitely. Two of them. Tryfsharp.com is a browser-based learning F-Sharp tool. It's really fabulous. It has both very, very introductory modules and a few more interesting advanced ones. There's one on type providers. So you can learn a ton there. And then there is also Scott Vlashen runs a website called F-Sharp for Fun and Profit. And his posts are very thorough, very in-depth, very, very, very good information. <laughs> I don't think I can say very enough. Yeah, I've had a number of people recommend those and even as good resources for outside of F-Sharp, just for more other functional ways of thinking about things. Mm, yeah. And I guess the last question I have for you, since it's been a while, and it's .NET, Visual Studio. Are there any other ways to run it? Does it work good in the free community edition? Or what's the best way for people to get involved without having to take that investment of buying the 500 or $700 version of Visual Studio just to get it integrated? Sure. I forget. It works in either Visual Studio Code or in the Community Edition. I forget which one, but it doesn't work in the other one. <laughs> so they can definitely download the one that it does work in. There's an Emacs plugin. There's Xamarin Studio. I think there's a Sublime plugin. There's all sorts of alternate editors should folks want. There's an Atom editor. There's a few online editors. I tend to stick with either Xamarin Studio or Visual Studio, so I don't know too well about all of the cool new ones, but I know there are a host of them. Okay. So Xamarin Studio works as well because I believe they have a free version as well, right? Yeah. Xamarin Studio works fabulously. Okay. Do you have any calls to action for the listeners? You've got a crew of people listening. And is there anything you want to ask of those listeners to go out and do and have a resultant outcome of? I suppose I would say come up with an idea and try to finish your first F-sharp bit of code, whether that's a short little template, something, you know, 15, 20 lines. Maybe one of my favorite examples recently is I used a couple different type providers and I connected to the World Bank type provider, which has all of the information that the World Bank has. So just a tremendous list of country statistics. And I didn't use most of them. I grabbed the capital city for each country in the world. And then I connected to the Foursquare API and I looked up the top venue in each capital city. So try to do something like that. Connect out to maybe a couple different APIs, maybe, you know, rewrite something and see maybe how amazing it is. And secondarily, if I could, if you're in the States, then perhaps you could go and buy something on jet.com if that's not too uh, <laughs> advertising <laughs> No, that sounds good. So where can people find you, follow along, and stay updated with what's going on in the world of Rachel Reese and find updates about everything you're doing, especially if they're wanting to do F-sharp or seeing how you're taking advantage of microservices with 300 plus different services at Jet? 
three places. Me personally, is, my Twitter is by far the best way to reach me. It's just at Rachel Reese, all one word. For awesome jet things, there is both the Jet Technology Twitter, at Jet Technology, all one word. And there is also the Jet Technology blog, which is techgroup.jet.com. And I will make sure you have all of those links to actually. <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure to get those all in the show notes as well. So people listening can follow along and find out more. Cool. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Rachel, for taking your time to join me today. I know we had a couple of issues during the call with wireless networks all around, but thank you for taking the time out and the patience of going through the call and getting this done. It was very interesting talking with you and expanding on a lot more of your background from just what I knew from following you for the past couple of years on Twitter. So thank you very much for giving your time to me. Thank you tons for having me. This was a lot of fun. And yeah, thank you for working through what I suspect were horrible hotel Wi-Fi issues. (laughs) No problem. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.